Let's foray into Nevada's wild spaces. This is a half an hour adventure with the Nevada Department of Wildlife. This is Nevada Wild. Here on this Welcome to Nevada Wild, brought to you by the Nevada Department of Wildlife. I'm Ashley Sanchez, here with co-host Aaron Keller. And if you listened to last week's podcast, you know that we had Shane Mahoney on. And this week is actually part two of that. So Shane is still here with us. (laughs) Great to have you here, Shane. Thank you very much. It's great fun. (laughs) And in the first podcast, we talked about your background. We also talked about your company, Conservation Visions, Mm -hmm. and a big program you guys are working on right now is the Wild Harvest Initiative. Could you get into exactly what this is? Sure. Um, I've I've always been searching for ways to give wildlife more value in people's minds. Um, I spent a lot of time reviewing environmental assessment proposals for all kinds of developments in my job with uh, the Newfoundland government. And by and large, you know, the truth is that wildlife just does not rate as highly as other resources, whether that's timber or minerals or water or agricultural land or whatever it might be. And clearly, um, the fate of wildlife is um, dependent to an appreciable extent on how much we do value it. So I'm always searching for ways to give it more value, and I started to think about... um, a harvest of wildlife and all the food we have and the connections in our cultures of sharing food and all of this kind of thing. And I started to think about the movements in society. You know, what movements could we link ourselves with rather than trying to create them? What movements were already out there that might be beneficial to wildlife? And this whole healthy living, healthy food kind of lifestyle choice, which has become a real phenomenon, that you see evidenced by the sales, uh, the phenomenal sales in cookbooks, and you know how to how to you know live forever, and mm-hmm. you know these kinds of things, and they're very real. And so I thought about this whole idea of wildlife as food, and it seemed at first a very. I, I kind of rejected it a, a few times because it seemed just simply too simplistic. After all, that's why we hunted wildlife. Uh, forever. You know, we gathered wildlife and fish and other things to to eat and to sustain ourselves. But I suddenly began to think about it more. And then I began to ask questions like, well, how much food do we actually harvest by recreational hunters and anglers in Canada and the United States? And, you know, what does that mean in terms of meals? And if one had to pay for that, what would it be actually worth in the marketplace? And if one had to replace that food, what would be the costs of replacing that food from the point of view of soil and you know, uh, carbon footprints and pesticides and insecticides and all the things that we need for industrialized productions or seem to need. And so I conceived of this idea of um, putting all of that information together. Fortunately, we have a very well-structured conservation system for uh, hunting and and fishing in Canada and the United States. There are really good records by state and provincial agencies. And so my first question was to find the document that was already out there because I couldn't believe that we hadn't already done this. And I did a little bit of searching and found that we hadn't, and then I contracted someone to take a harder look at it to see maybe I missed it, and then I came to the realization that no... 
No one, not since the time that the North American model was first incepted 120 years ago, had anyone attempted to actually calculate the amount of wild food that we're actually harvesting and the number of people that that touches. So I set out on the, the laborious task of dealing with 67 government entities <laughs> uh, to pull together uh, all of the recent uh, harvest information for all species of birds and mammals and reptiles and also all fish species. You know, build a database, find the talent to do that, and you know, work through all of the complications of incomplete data and data waiting to be completed, and then the getting all the body weights and scientific reference sources for that, and then the dressed weights, and then the consumable weights for all of this. The end result is I now have the largest database in the temperate world on the harvest of wildlife and fish. Uh, we we now know and we'll soon be starting to bring out the information on the total number of animals that we harvest sustainably every year in Canada and the United States. And we will be breaking that down right down to the number of meals that are provided through that activity. We are also conducting shearing surveys. We did the first one in Texas. We hope the next one will probably be done here in Nevada. We hope so. Um, where we actually asked hunters uh, to tell us, you know, how much of the meat that they harvested did they share, and who did they share it with, and so on. Because uh, this is very important in terms of valuing wildlife, you know, we have about uh, 40 to 45 million people in Canada and the United States that hunt and angle recreationally, fish and hunt each year. Um, we believe our sort of starting hypothesis was each of those people share that food with at least four people, probably more, just their own families, husbands, mm -hmm. wives, children, you know, but grandparents and so on, but so probably more than four, but we said four. And that would mean that, you know, somewhere around 160 to 170 million people in Canada and the United States actually partake in this harvest in one way wow. or another. And then all of a sudden that changes the political dynamic because then all of a sudden you're talking about something that's not conducted by just a minority of people but it's actually conducted, if you will, and embraced by a majority of people in Canada and the United States. And we think the numbers are going to be much higher. We think it's going to be more like 8 to 10 people that individuals shared their food with. So we now have this up and running as a, <coughs> a major program. Uh, we have built it up from an idea to 35 partners, which... Uh, and the partnership is very important because I wanted that to be so diverse that people would see that this is a real phenomenon. So we have non-governmental agencies, we have private citizens, we have state governments, um, you know, we have uh, industry, and you know, so we have the Bass Pros and the Sitkas and the Loopholes and the Cabela's, and we have the Arizona state governments and Nevada and Texas and Florida and Alaska now that's joined and more that are interested. We have most of the big NGOs, you know, the Elk Foundations, the Dallas Safari Clubs, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, uh, uh, Whitetails Unlimited, the Sportsman's Alliance, you know, on and on and on. And um, so we now have this big powerhouse of a communication vehicle and we have the big data, which no one else has anywhere in the world. Uh, and we are now about to bring this out through a series of films, magazines, uh, articles, uh, big social media presence, 
we've hired a big marketing firm, multi-faceted marketing firm in Canada to help guide this. And collectively in our alliance, the Wild Harvest Alliance, as we call it, we have now a reach of about 20 million people. And, um, and it's continuing to grow. And I want to stress that it's not just about uh, hunting and angling. We intend to bring the, the wild berry pickers, wild fruits, wild nuts, medicinal plants, um, you know, maple syrup, shed antlers, uh, wild flowers, firewood. In other words, any, any user that takes from nature in a sustainable way, we want to have included in this. And we also want to reach out uh, particularly to people in the agricultural community that are starting to do innovative things in terms of raising livestock and other animals as well. Because at a certain point, you know, it becomes possible that they can almost live wild lives. Not quite, but they can almost live wild lives. And as far as we can make that happen, where it is possible, uh, we want to also draw linkages there. And uh, the whole idea, we are... are tagline is to eat wild and live free. This is very much about a lifestyle and it's very much about talking about hunting and angling in a much larger, more deeply embedded, multifaceted kind of relationship between human beings and nature that involve the health benefits, you know, the not just from the food perspective, but the health benefits that we know that derive from spending time in nature. So it's become a very, very big program now. Yeah, and I think the the goal and the purpose of Wild Harvest Initiative is, is so important. And I remember when you first brought it to brought it to Endo and and into the state of Nevada, and you know we were talking about it. It seemed so simple, yeah. it right? Re- that's just, what's crazy to me. We think were just like, oh, y- this you said that you before. were gonna, um, you know, produce or compile this database. Yeah, and we were like, oh, that's uh, that that. You know that's that's great. That's nice. Yeah, yeah that's nice. And then uh, you know, as you start to think about it, and you you kind of include all these different things, and then the sharing index of well, you share it with a certain number of people. Well, that grows it even more, and it's just it's really eye opening to think about wildlife and and the wild food that we eat in that way is is um, it's very unique, for sure. It is, and it it also helps us break down some of the barriers that. Um, that you would both be familiar with as employees of a government agency. You know, there are many communities in the public, right? And uh, every one of those communities tends to want your attention. They believe, you know, and rightfully so, you you have the legal responsibility under law right. uh, for the custodianship of nature. In, in um, and that's very different than any NGO. You know, we can recreate an NGO overnight. You can't recreate a state agency or a provincial agency. They're 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 they're, they're the legal arm of, of conservation, and um, but you know we know that we often talk about communities as as though they're divided. So you have a rural you know urban divide or whatever, or you know a, a wealth divide, and and you know there's there's realities to these things, of course. But the one thing that everybody uh, wants is a healthy life. Um, you know, I've never met a really wealthy person who says, I'd like to have an unhealthy life. <laughs> uh, or a person who doesn't have much money mm-hmm. to say, you know what, uh, you know, I'd like to have an unhealthy life. I think everybody wants to have a, a healthy life. And I think everybody cares about the food they consume. And, and people love food for a, tons of reasons. It's not just you're hungry and mm-hmm. you want to fill that void. I mean, 
relationships are built over food, uh, trust is built over food, uh, families are united over food, uh, communities are in many cases united over events that involve a lot of food, you know, special days, fairs, you know, celebrations, whatever. And um, so if they really care about food, which they do, and they really care about healthy living, then why not give them something to think about that we care deeply about, which are wild animals and the places in which they live. And this is what this is really about. You know, start thinking about wildlife as part of your food security as a nation. Start thinking about those natural landscapes as food provisioning landscapes. Fresh water as well, of course, but also firewood and medicinal plants and wild mushrooms and shed antlers and uh, maple syrup and wild rices and wild flowers for your table and, uh, you know, all wild honey. Um, you know, all of these things, start thinking about it. And they're all legally uh, accessible to the citizens of Canada and the United States and many other parts of the world. It just has to be regulated, but it's mm -hmm. all perfectly legal. And when you start thinking about the number of people, you know, I come from Newfoundland, obviously, but when I start thinking about the number of people who either, you know, recreationally fish or commercially fish, for that matter, it's still wild food, or who pick berries and pick mushrooms and, you know, harvest firewood and all these things, I mean, pretty soon you're trying to figure out who's not doing it. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you're pretty much left to the people who are incapacitated for some reason. And even then, at home, it's not uncommon, you know, to see people out, you know, harvesting blueberries or partridge berries, the kind of berries that, that we harvest a lot. And, you know, it's a family event and the children are scurrying around, you know, like, like ground squirrels, you know, uh, picking berries and the and the father and mother, you know, are more mature about it. They plank themselves down and, you know, very methodically, you know, <laughs> fill up their buckets. But then, you know, you'll often see the, you know, grandparents and even older people and even great-grandparents who can no longer get out and walk maybe and do it, but are, you know, sitting there in a chair with a blanket over them just watching this all taking place. They're still part of it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's possible to build that, and I think it's possible to not only reduce, I think it is possible to crush, to absolutely demolish the divides between rural and urban people over this issue. The, the, the restaurants that are turning to wild foods, where are they? They're not in rural Newfoundland. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, we might sell a little bit of moose because that's what we grew up in, but the places that are really experimenting with wild food, uh, you know, they're the big urban centers mm -hmm. of y your country and of Canada and the rest of the world. Um, and then you go there and, you know, instead of, uh, instead of paying, you know, $20 for your meal, of course, you get the privilege of spending $300 for your meal because it's all wild. And of course that makes it so much better. Um, and, uh, so the whole idea was to, was to take something that we knew mattered to human beings and, and make that the Trojan horse for wildlife's uh, safety, for, for, for wildlife's being valued. And the other thing that we wanted to bring out was something that's really exceptional and has become um, more and more important to me uh, as I've developed this project and built the alliance and talked more and more about it. And that's this sharing of wild things. So I've, in many lectures, I pointed out that, you know, we do not go to the grocery store and buy a prime rib roast and cross the street to our neighbor's house and knock on the door and give it to them. 
and and if we did, it would be viewed as most peculiar, if not insulting, <laughs> maybe even. To yeah. them, right? And yet, of course, if we harvest um, a deer, or we harvest an elk, or we harvest waterfowl, or we harvest fish, um, you know, it's very common for us, of course, to either go across the street and give some to our neighbor, or to invite them to our house for a special dinner or a barbecue to cook up something that we bring to our office where people can have a elk chili or something of this nature. This is very, very common, but its commonness should not blind us to the profoundness of this action and, and, and of what we do, and because it is not restricted to the hunter, nor is it restricted to the angler. I mean, if, for example, in your home you harvest berries and you make jams or jellies, you are very keen to share those. People come to visit, you give them one. You know, you t take that with you when you go now. But again, you don't go to the store and buy a, a bottle of jam and give it to somebody. And, and There is something inherently human about this sharing of wild things that we gather. And I don't have the full story figured out in my narrative yet, but I am working on it because what that does is it shows how these kinds of activities, this harvesting in nature, tends to bring out one of the attributes in human beings that we most admire. Whether we are black or whether we are white, whether we are Korean or whether we are Russian or whether we are an Uzbek or whether we are from rural Newfoundland or an American, it does not matter. We all inv admire people who share with others. It's a universal phenomenon. So this is another one of those beautiful kind of value-laden mysteries that has great translational uh, potential uh, for these activities of harvesting in nature that will resonate with that community who themselves are not directly involved. And of course we know that we have to reach the broad community, the broad public to gain sanction for the lifestyles that we wish to pursue. And uh, so the Wild Harvest Initiative is, is uh, as you can see, it has so many dimensions that we will be feeding on its efforts, I think, for a very, very long time to come. No pun intended. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like the pun. <laughs> If you enjoy listening to our podcast, leave us a review on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information on hunting, fishing, boating, and all things wildlife, go to endow.org. Now, back to the show. One of the great points that you made when we were kind of getting started um, is that the most important part or the most important demographic that the Wild Harvest Initiative could target is the cities mm -hmm. yes, and how we um, the nation or, or the world is becoming more and more urbanized and Nevada is the m most urban state in the United States and uh, maybe could you expand on that a little bit more and like why you think that well as I alluded to earlier um, first of all food in general is becoming a sort of a it's moved from necessity to phenomenon, really, in modern society. Um, 
you know, people are really preoccupied with food, with good food, with, with healthy food, with knowing the source of their food, the origins of their food, of growing their own food, of acquiring their own food. Alongside that, we see chefs um, becoming the modern rock stars of the world, right? I mean, it's a it's phenomenon, true. right? I mean, you put on a, one of those big white hats and you put on a white apron and you walk around a kitchen and being either nice or nasty to people and all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're a celebrity. Um, as many people have said to me, Shane, if you want to write a book that will make you some money, you know, write a cookbook <laughs> because <laughs> uh, they, they sell. And so, the, you know, th these things are real. And uh, the experimentation of, with new food, of course, cities have always been places of experimentation, right? Because you have to compete, and so you're always looking to bring customers in for some, for some new reason. And uh, we have a real trend taking place in major cities towards, um, you know, restaurants that serve wild foods. And well, they can be wild mushrooms, they can be wild berries, it can be... You know, sea buckthorn is a sort of a, a sort of a, a little um, side that's uh, provided there on your dish to make things interesting, and wild meat, of course, and wild fish is um, has 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 become you know the, the the sort of gold standard. You know, uh, wild salmon versus farm salmon. What are you going to choose? You're going to choose wild salmon. Ninety-nine point nine percent of mm -hmm. people are going mm -hmm. to do this. There's a reason why they do it too. Um, and people are moving towards the grain-fed and, you know, the free-range beef and all these kinds of things. And so I think there's a real uh, clear indication that there is a growing, uh, a growing channel of communication of similar thought process between people in urban societies and people who live in other places like rural societies around at least this idea of healthy food. And the Wild Harvest Initiative is all about that. It's about what are the, what are the health benefits that can derive to you and your family and your community? And what are the business opportunities, for that matter, within those cities uh, of serving that community that has that kind of interest? And of course, then all of a sudden, you have a restaurateur in, in San Francisco who values wildlife that's out on that land or values that landscape that produces those beautiful mushrooms that when he does his magic or she does her magic with it, you know, all of a sudden creates a business that employs people and so on and so forth. So I think that the, um, and you know, when you go to uh, urban centers, go to New York, I mean, go, go, to, go to San Francisco, go to Portland, go to Vancouver, uh, you know, and you know, that's where everybody's riding on the skateboards. That's where everybody's jogging along the, the seawall. Uh, that's where everybody is uh, slurping, uh, you know, some uh, oozing concoction that's made out of seaweed and, uh, <laughs> you know, some uh, elaborate something or other. Uh, you know, that's where it's happening. That's not happening in rural Newfoundland. We're still living very well on our carrots and our turnips, potatoes, and moose. Yeah. Uh, but the real phenomenon about the experiment with this exotic food, as they see it, is happening more and more in the urban centers. We also know that we're finally getting the medical evidence to support what we've always felt, which is that time in the outdoors and time in nature actually brings us real physical, emotional, 
endocrinological uh, kinds of benefits, that there's actually physiological responses by the human being when they spend time in nature. And more and more medical evidence is showing this. Um, things such as cholesterol levels and blood pressure levels and you know uh, stress levels, hormone levels, all these kinds of things. Um, and so um, this is leading, of course, to the green space movement in cities and so on and so forth, trying to recreate that. Well, if you start to put all of that together, you still do have uh, discussions about issues like animal death. We, they're definitely still there. And they're there, therefore, in a way that involves the issue of hunting. And you still have some of this clearly, uh, you know, statistically different kinds of perceptions coming out of deep urban centers such as Las Vegas or, you know, a place like that versus somebody living in a very rural part of the state. Mm -hmm. You do have those differences. But the differences have to be bridged. And none of those differences mean that the people disagree on the value of wildlife. They still want wildlife. They still yeah. want animals. Yeah, true. What they are concerned about is how we treat them, how we interact, and, and whether we, in some cases, should hunt them or should not hunt them. But then in the very midst of that community that sometimes expresses most of the concern about hunting is where you're finding this phenomenon of these wild game restaurants, of these wild food restaurants. So what I dream of being entirely possible is to take, which we will do with the Wild Harvest Initiative, small-scale events that we actually bring into, into uh, cities, maybe building bridges with the brew pub communities, uh, or maybe people who have uh, like to attend markets, farmers' markets in the cities, or things of this nature, building alliances with them to actually hold wild harvest-related events. And at those events, there would be sources of food that come from hunting and sources of food that come from angling and sources of food that come from berry picking and, and you know, f people carving things out of, uh, out of f you know, hardwood that they've gathered that has been people making jewelry out of shed antlers and things of this nature to point out that it's not just, you know, a divide of, you know, the classic kind of um, hunter, you know, dressed out in full camouflage and so on and so forth with a high-powered rifle, you know, going off into the mountains versus somebody who likes to read very important books while they're sipping their latte on a Sunday morning and reading the New York Times, you know, that there's a whole lot that brings these people together. And one of the things that can bring them together is this issue of quality wild food because let there be no doubt in anybody's mind food is one of the things that makes us feel good or bad food can make us uh, can change our body shapes food can change our moods food can change uh, even the 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 incidence of really bad and important diseases we know this the medical evidence is clear on this and much of that discussion you know, takes place in these urban settings where people talk about these things. So I actually see the urban setting as our mm -hmm. vast opportunity uh, to build a greater concern and a more inclusive concern for wildlife that tolerates a wide range of interactions. If for no other reason than the vast majority of the voters are there, it means we have to find a way to sit down and talk with them about these various issues. It is fine for the person, you know, who lives in an urban place.
place. Let us pick on New York because it's far away. Uh, and <laughs> That's they, an easy one. And they live in a very, you know, upscale condominium. And somehow, by miraculous intent or fate, a field mouse gets in there. Or, even worse, an insect of some kind, like a cockroach in particular, they instantly, of course, call whoever it is that looks after that building to get this monster out of their home right away. And usually they leave their home while this undertaking is, is, is taking place, where this military operation to get rid of the cockroach has been mobilized. But some of those individuals find it very easy to tell the people of South Africa or Namibia or Tanzania or Botswana live with your elephants that crush your fields or kill you or live with your lions where it's not safe for your daughter to go down to the river to bring back water in an evening because you may never see her again they find it very easy to do this that whole dialogue has to change but we have to find a way to meet on a common ground when there's so much difference in opinion and I think the way to meet on common ground is eating wild and living free because the other thing that preoccupies many many urbanites is they want to live healthily they want to look beautiful for all of their lives and eventually many of them I'm convinced are determined to eventually die of nothing hmm. so, <laughs> <laughs> so I think we should find a way to bridge that dialogue exactly well you've given us a lot to think about <laughs> this is huge and i'm really excited to see where this goes and where and we you're go a big partner here. don't forget and i was a big partner yes, in this are, one one of the very earliest ones we're happy to be a partner yeah. we're happy to be involved in this and yeah. we're excited that you came in today to share all yeah, this information so i no, feel like great. i have so much to take in right now and think about <laughs> like it's so interesting to me well we can do more in the future definitely yeah, let's definitely do updates on this too yeah. so yeah. thank you shane for being here thank that was you. so great such good information and thank you everyone for listening that does it for this week's nevada wild Join us again next week for our next adventure, Nevada Wild. It's a production of the Nevada Department of Wildlife.